Hi, everybody. It's nice to see you. My name is David Foreman. I feel a little self-conscious speaking English in this setting, but we'll tr we'll try to get over it. Okay. A little while back, one of my daughters, who's taken an interest in high-tech work, went to a women's technology conference in Houston and came back with a small cardboard box. The same cardboard box appeared for on Sunday mornings about a month and a half later for subscribers of the Sunday New York Times. The box is made by Google, and it is known simply as cardboard. And it is the cheapest entry into the augmented reality phenomenon, virtual reality phenomenon, which is taking off in the high-tech world. The way the cardboard box works is that there is two little holes for your eyes, and there's lenses that you look out, and about six inches or three inches away from those lenses, you slip in your smartphone, and you look through those lenses at your smartphone, and then there is content specially created for cardboard by the New York Times, by other places, NPR and other places, that can be rendered into a three-dimensional immersive phenomenon where you actually feel like you're there. I took a little tour of Paris that way. You walk around underneath the Eiffel Tower. It's really remarkable. You can save the airfare. <laughs> I heard an interview from a reporter on NPR who was reporting on cardboard and her first experience with the New York Times. The New York Times had done an article and produced a little film, a 3D immersive film, an article interviewing some Syrian refugee girls in a refugee camp not too far away from here, um, part of the civil war in Syria. And it was interesting. It was really one of the only times I've heard a reporter with a quiver in her voice and almost crying on the air. She said, to read an article about these girls in that camp is one thing. To see a picture, a picture is worth a thousand words, that's something else. To see a movie brings you into the experience even more dramatically. But to be immersed in the experience in three dimensions that you can look at this thing and, and sort of walk around the camp and see it from different angles and hear the voices and these people talking to you is a whole other experience. It really, really feels like you're there. The question I have for you today is... If immersive 3D experiences can be created through modern technology, can the Torah create them? Does the Torah endeavor to create them? The Torah is ink on paper. It's the ultimate two-dimensional experience. 
It's a flat piece of paper with words. But is there a way to mimic that Google Cardboard experience? Does the Torah have a way to do that? Where it can thrust the reader into the world of which it is speaking. You feel like you can walk around, survey it, and really feel like you're there. Is that possible? Does the Torah do that? Today I want to suggest to you that it does, and that there is a kind of methodology that the Torah uses to do this, that in a certain way is not all that dissimilar from the methodology that modern scientists use to create cardboard. To strip the idea of cardboard down to its most basic non-technical schematics, there are these two little holes for your eyes, there's this lens, and then there's this screen, which is your smartphone, a lens and a screen. Could it be that the Torah works that way too? Could it be that there are certain pieces of text that are a lens and other pieces of text, large panoramas of text that are a screen? That if you can just peep through this little two or three sentences, this lens, you can look through that lens at this vast panoramic story, these other chapters, and suddenly feel as if you're there a lens, and a screen. I want to suggest to you that the Torah works like that. And today I want to give you, try to lead you through a possible example of this. What I want to do with you first is take a look at the two or three little verses that I think are the lens. What we're going to do is learn through those verses as best we can on their own. And then when we're done with that, we're going to try to use them as a lens through which to view a screen. We're going to try to look at a much larger section of text and see how this lens allows us to see the larger text, the screen, differently. For now, I'll keep quiet about what the larger text is, the screen. But the lens, I want to suggest, is... The story of the mother bird, the law of the mother bird, the famous law of Kansipur that we have in Kitetse, in Dvarim. As you know, the Torah is composed of stories and laws. Kansipur is a law, but I think the law is a lens through which we can look back on stories, upon narratives, that perhaps were the building blocks of the law. Almost as if the law developed out of the narratives. Let me show you the text on your screens. You can see just the basic two or three line text of Kansipur. Most of you are probably familiar with it. But let's just kind of read it through, just on a very basic level, and pay attention to what the words say. The words themselves are a little bit puzzling. If we were writing this law, we probably wouldn't have chosen these exact words. Listen to some of the puzzling aspects of the words. Ki kare kan si por 
So I just have the Hebrew here. How do you translate those words? If you're going to translate those words, ki yikarei kan tzipor lefanecha, what do you think they mean? Okay, so yikarei is going to mean happen upon, right? Kan is going to be a nest, a nest of birds. So you would probably translate it as when, when you happen upon a nest of birds. Now the problem with this is that, and again, I'm not such a grammar maven, so I'm going to... Uh, you know, if, if I'm wrong on this, I'm wrong on this. But the way it seems to me, the ki kare fanacha, if you translate it absolutely literally, means something weird. It actually means that the kansipor is the thing that happens upon you, right? I mean, that's what it sounds like. Like, the, the, there's this concepor, right? You, you're, you're just sitting there, and all of a sudden there's this bird's nest that happens upon you, which of course is strange because if somebody's moving, it's not the nest, it's you. You're the one who's moving, so you're the one who happens upon this nest. So the very beginning of this is, is kind of odd, this notion that the nest would happen upon you because you're the one who's walking. Second thing, of course, that's odd is that if the word yikare means happen upon, how should it be spelled? It should be spelled with a hey. So the Torah seems to be playing a little bit of fuzzy games with us because the root kufresh aleph doesn't really mean happen, of course. It means call, to call. But it, it, you can't translate it that way because then it wouldn't mean anything. The, the nest is calling to you. It doesn't sound like the nest is calling to you. So we have two strange things. The use of the word aleph in a word which seems to be kufresh hey. The nest hap- you happen upon the nest, and the notion that that nest somehow is moving towards you, which is really odd. Anyway, ki when you happen upon this nest, baderach on the way, And by the way, the notion of happen upon is also an interesting word. What does that imply that you ha- that you just happen upon that nest? That sort of excludes another possibility, doesn't it? That I was looking for it. Right? So the Torah seems to be setting up a situation that we're only talking about someone who just coincidentally happens to come upon this nest. What kind of person would not happen to come upon a nest but would be looking for a nest? A hunter. Right? So we're not talking about a hunter. Right? We're talking about a pedestrian. Now the question is, well, what difference does it make? Like, why should we care whether the person who comes across the nest is a pedestrian or a hunter, why should the, the, would the law sort of in the Pashat Pshat only apply to one of them? It sounds like the Torah is saying this is a law that applies to pedestrians who aren't looking for nests. Why should that be so? On what grounds would we make the distinction between the kind of person coming upon this nest? So we'll want to wonder about that too. Anyway, you, so there's this guy, a pedestrian, he happens upon this nest, Baderach b'chol eitz o'ala aretz. It doesn't make a difference if the nest is on a tree or if the nest is on the ground. Efrochim obetzim. doesn't make a difference if there's little chicks or if there's eggs. Va'em rovetzet al efrochim. But the mother is hovering over the eggs or over the, the chicks. Lo tikach ha'em al don't take the mother on, upon the children. Send away the mother and then take the children. So that things should go well with you 
and that you should live a long life. Now, when you read these words, you sort of get the sense that there is some sort of ethical imperative behind the text, right? That there's there's some sort of larger ethical lesson that's being taught here. But exactly, precisely what it is, is kind of hard to put your finger on. There's a famous Machlokot Rishonim about this. There's a famous dispute among the, you know, the, the medieval commentators. The representative uh, commentators in the dispute are going to be the Ramban and the Rambam. And basically, just to recap their main idea of the, Ram, the Ramban and the Rambam, there's two different rationales that they give. Let me just put it out there, and then let's come back to the text and see which rationale seems to be to work better with the text. So the Ramban says that it's kind of like a species extinction thing, which is the same way that Otovet Bono, right, that there's a law prohibiting you to kill mother and child or parent and child children, uh, uh, animals on the same day. So too, you wouldn't want to, to kill mother bird and baby birds on the same day. It's not right. It smacks of species extinction. In other words, the way the Ramban puts it is that we all know that God gave man mankind the right to use animals for food. So any given animal, it's okay to eat, right? But you shouldn't get rid of any given species. You shouldn't get rid of the species cow, right? So a step towards getting rid of a species is to wipe out two generations in the same moment. So you shouldn't do that. This is the Ramban's idea. The Rambam's idea, the Rambam quote, the Ramban quotes him in Moranavuchim. The, the Rambam's idea is that it's an issue of, of, of pain and distress for the mother. The Rambam argues that one of the most essential fears in living mammals is uh, the fear or the distress that a mother would face when forced to watch the death of a child. We as human beings can understand that distress because we too would feel that distress. And the Rambam posits that it's not just human beings that feel that distress, but other mammals also feel that distress. And therefore, it's not nice to impose that upon the mother. So if you're going to take the chicks and ultimately eat the chicks or eat the eggs, don't do that in front of the mother. Send out, send the mother away so that the mother doesn't experience that pain. That's the way the Rambam understands it. Okay, so now let's come back to the text. Let's start with Ramban, and then we'll go to the Rambam. And I want to ask you whether you think the theory completely works with the text or whether there's a problem. Let's go to the Ramban's theory, the species extinction idea, the idea that it's wrong to take mother and child right together because it smacks of species extinction. So let's go to the, the language, right? So that would explain why in Pasuk Zion, that would explain why you, you don't take mother and child, you would let the mother go, and you would, uh, when you take the, the children. Is there any difficult part of the text here, though? Right? So what's the problem in the text? Take a look at Pasuk Vav, end of Pasuk Vav. What's the problem with this language? Lo tik, according to the Ramban, right, that's a species extinction issue, lo tikach ha'em al habanim. Is that the way you would have phrased it? How would you have phrased it if you were the Ramban here? 
im, wouldn't you have said im? You would have said, lo tika, the most direct way to say this would be, lo tikacha im, im habanim, right? Don't take mother with child. Instead, let one go. That would have been the easy way to say it. So the question is, why does the text opt for the more convoluted way of saying it, which is, lo tikacha im al habanim, what does that mean? Right? It's lotikachaim imabanim. That's a much more straightforward way of saying it. Okay, so that's a problem with Ramban. Let's go to the Rambam. Another problem. Yeah. Who cares if it's a pedestrian or a Another problem is who cares if it's a pedestrian or a hunter. Another problem, by the way, is who cares if it's a bird or another animal. Right? In other words, if it's a species extinction thing, so why are we all of a sudden talking about birds in particular? Okay, but let's go to the to the Rambam. Right? So the Rambam says no, it's an issue of causing undue distress to the mother. Right? Okay, that's why you have to send away the mother. Now, what about, though, that, that end of Pasuk Vav, according to the Rambam? Is that the best way to say it? If it's an issue of causing distress to the mother, for the mother to watch the children being taken from her, would you say it this way? Lo tikacha aim al habanim. Lo tikacha aim al habanim. How would you say it? Wouldn't it be the other way around? Right? In other words, the, the cleanest way to say it, according to the Rambam, is going to be, Lo tikach habanim aim. Don't take the children in front of the mother. Instead, send away the mother. Instead, the verse has got it reversed, right? What do you mean, don't take the mother? It's not about taking the mother. It's about taking the children in front of the mother. So either way... Right, we're stuck with language which doesn't feel like it quite works. So I want to suggest a third possibility, kind of between the Rambam and between the Ramban, as possibly simple pshat over here. And the suggestion actually comes from my Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Weinberg, Zetzal from Ner Yisrael, actually made this connection uh, in an article I found somewhere recently. But the connection basically is this, you know, we all know that in the Torah, you know, usually most mitzvahs don't come with rewards that we know of. This is one of two famous mitzvahs that come with rewards. Laman yitav lach varachta yamim. And of course, the other great mitzvah that comes with its matan schara betzida, that comes with a reward along with it, the reward of arichud yamim, was very famously, is not just kan sipor, but it is kibudav ve'em. Right? It is honoring your parents. So the obvious question is, right, why should it be that two mitzvahs at, are picked out of the hat to have matan schar betzida, and it just so happens that it's the same matan schar, it just so happens it's the same thing, which is that you get a long life, that would seem to suggest some kind of commonality within the mitzvahs themselves. So the question then is, what commonality is there between the idea of kibodav ve'em and the idea of kansipor? And you can begin to see it because kansipor has to do with a mother and children. So it does seem like it's in the same ballpark as you know parent and children mitzvos. Could kibodav ve'em be the missing link that we're looking for? Could this have something to do? with honoring parents? If so, 
what? How would honoring parents fit into this picture? So let's come back to the question I started with, one of, one of the earlier questions, which is, or the two other questions, which is, why are we talking about a pedestrian instead of a hunter? And why are we talking about a bird instead of another animal? Maybe those two questions are the key to understanding what Kibbut Ava'em has to do with all of this, honoring parents has to do with all of this. Let's start with the bird issue. Let's talk about pedestrians and birds. We're talking about pedestrians and birds in this mitzvah. So let's talk about pedestrians and birds. You guys are pedestrians. What if we ended this shiur right now, a little bit early? And what if I said to you guys, we're going to have like a little practicum in the mitzvah of sending away the mother bird right now? I want you guys all to go out, and it says you're, you're not supposed, you're supposed to send away the mother bird Right, which implies that you could catch the mother bird, right? So here's what I want you to do. All you guys, you pedestrians, I want you to take five minutes now, okay? And, and just get up from your seats. And what if I told you to just go outside? There's plenty of birds in Alon Shvut, okay? And I want you all to come back with a bird, right? I don't want you to, I want you to actually, Right, you're not going to send away any birds, but you would have the opportunity to take a bird, right? So everyone come back with a bird. Now, if I gave you guys 10 minutes, and there's a lot of people in the room, and if I asked you guys all to come back with a bird, what percentage of you do you think would successfully meet the test? Zero. Zero. What the heck is the Torah saying then? The Torah is pretending... As if all of you pedestrians have a choice as to whether or not you're going to have a bird. No, don't have the bird. Send away the bird. You can't have a bird. You get close to a bird, the bird's going to fly away. None of you are getting birds. Ah. But no, because then there's no mitzvah. You don't have a chance to capture the mother bird. So why is the Torah telling us, pretending that we have a chance to capture this bird? The answer is, because look at the particular circumstance of this bird. In other words, if you were a hunter, by the way, you would have a chance, right? A hunter comes with nets. A hunter comes with a smith and wesson. A hunter comes with bows and arrows. Then you can have your bird. But if you're a pedestrian and you don't have materials, you're not getting a bird unless it's this particular case. Because what is happening in this particular case with the bird that could fly? It's a mother bird, and she's hovering over her nest. She's protecting her young. She could fly, but she won't. The English expression, sitting duck, comes from this mitzvah, right? She's a sitting duck. Now do you see what this has to do with honoring parents? Why can't you have that bird? Don't take that bird hovering over the nest. You can take the young, but you can't take the mother. Why? Well, let's think about it. You're a pedestrian. Let's talk about your capabilities here. Do you have a capability, a physical capability of getting the eggs? Absolutely. Climb up the tree and get the eggs. Now let's talk about your physical capability to get the mother. There it's more complicated. Technically, 
you do not have the physical ability to get that mother because she could fly away and elude you and never in a million years you would get her. But in this particular circumstance, you have the unique ability to get that bird. What is going to be your weapon? You're going to use her maternal instinct against her. You're going to use the fact that she is guarding her eggs as the trap that will allow you to get her. Don't do that. It's a violation of the sanctity of motherhood. Kibbutz Avaim doesn't allow it. Because Kibbutz Avaim isn't just about honoring your mother, perhaps. It's about honoring motherhood, even in animals. There is something sacred, seemingly, about that instinct of a mother, the sacred instinct of a mother, to do everything for her child, to even sacrifice herself for the child, to use that against her as the weapon through which you will entrap her is to desecrate that instinct, to take something which is an ultimate end in the natural world, the way things should be, and use that as a means towards your dinner. That's not kosher. You can't do that. For those of you who learned in yeshiva, if you will express this in yeshiva's terms, you might say that the mother bird has a migu, right? A migu that she could fly away, right? Migu that the mother bird could fly away, right? You can't take her. You have to accord her the status of as if she could fly. Human beings, we have the ability to eat animals. God gave animals a check on our ability to eat them, which is the various ways that animals evade predators with birds. It's the fact that they could fly. In this case, you have to treat this mother bird as if she could fly and just let her fly away. Don't use the fact that she's on the nest as your way of capturing her. If this is in fact the case, the text makes sense. The language of the text makes sense. Right? It reads very cleanly. When you see a mother crouching over her eggs, and you're a pedestrian, if you're a hunter, it wouldn't apply, right? Because if you're a hunter, then you're not using, in particular, the fact that the mother is there as your way of catching her. You're using your Smith & Wesson to catch her. So that's fair game. But if the only weapon you have is her motherhood, you can't use that against her. So it's the pedestrian that is being told that you can't, right? Your only way to get that bird is to, is to use her motherhood against her. You can't do that. So if this nest just happens, just happened before that nest and the mother's crouching over this, don't take the mother, rather let the mother fly away. Your only right is to the eggs. Your only right is to the chicks. If that's the case, it could well be that not only does Kibbutz Aim shed light on Kan Sipor, it may also be that Kan Sipor sheds light on Kibbutz Aim. The connection between the two helps sharpen the understanding of what we're doing 
when we human beings honor our mothers. Because think about the sacrifice that the mother bird that is willing to make for her child. Human beings are also, human mothers also make similar sacrifices, would make similar sacrifices for their children. Human mothers will do anything for their children. That's what love demands. But the problem is, if you think about Kibbutz Aim, right, the command to honor your mother can also be phrased as a command not to dishonor her. So you might say, well, why would you want to dishonor your mother? What's the Yetzir Hara to dishonor your mother, to not do what she asks of you? Well, if you think about it, the love of the mother, as sacred as it is, is potentially a kind of trap for her. The mother makes herself vulnerable with that love, with the fact that she will love no matter what, all the way till the end, no matter what. With the mother bird, that trap would endanger the life of the mother. She's willing to sit there and flutter her wings against the pedestrian that's 400 times larger than her in a battle that she will surely lose. If you think about human mothers, there's another kind of parent trap that comes with motherly love. The downside of motherly love is if you're a child and you figure out that your mom is going to love you all the way to the end, no matter what, what kind of Yetzirah does that place in your lap? Maybe I don't have to call my mom every week and she'll still love me. Maybe I don't need to rise to her expectations. She'll still love me. The sacred unconditional aspect of love, the unconditional aspect of a mother's love is what makes it sacred. The fact that it is unconditional, that it is there till the end no matter what, is what makes maternal love so powerful. But it also makes the mother vulnerable. And the law of Kibbutz Aim is don't take advantage of a mother's love. Don't use a mother's love against her. Don't take that love for what it gives you and fail to live up to the responsibilities that implicitly come with that love. Honor your mother even though you don't have to, even though she'll love you anyway. Don't get sucked in. Don't give in to placing your mother in the parent trap. And when we do these things, when we honor motherhood with the bird... When we honor our own mothers that way and accord maternal love the sanctity that it deserves, what's the reward? Long life, a good life, a long life. Why do you think that would be the reward? Where do you get your life from? From your mom, from your mother. So if you get life from your mom and you honor motherhood, what are you really doing? 
You're honoring the source of your life. So that redounds to strengthening your life, to making your life qualitatively good and quantitatively good, that you'll be around for longer. Okay. Well, I knew the men were going to come back with that. Hold on for the second, because what I'm going to say next directly impacts that question. It's a fascinating question. Do you hear that question? The question was, and what about fathers? Does that to exclude the father from all of this? So the paradigm which the mother puts forth in the law of the mother bird is mother bird. But as you'll see now, males can partake of that paradigm also. And that is a nice segue to bring me to the screen. What we've looked at right now is a little lens, two sentences. But what I want to suggest to you is that that lens is designed as a lens to see another story, a saga, a group of stories earlier in the Torah. I guess around this point, I should probably say that in the beginning, when I first noticed these things about Mother Bird, I didn't see, see or understand the fact that it seemed to be a lens through which to see a screen. I have a video website called Aleph Beta. You can watch videos on it, on this kind of stuff. And I put out a video, an animated video, which pretty much said everything that I just told you until now. It was on Parshat Kitetse last year. And we have a little discussion board. And on that discussion board, people from all over the country can write in, all over the world can write in. And that discussion board is wonderful because it's a way of having a conversation with Torah learners around the world. And the type of stuff you see on there is stuff that, like, I would have never seen. So it's a fellow out there in Indiana, somewhere, small town in Indiana, by the name of Jason McDaniel. <laughs> Jason McDaniel noticed that the phrase that the Torah uses here Aim al-Habanim. That phrase is not original. There's another time earlier in the Torah, one other time, only one other time, earlier in the Torah that that phrase appears. And Jason wanted to know if maybe that earlier time in the Torah might be connected to this only other exclusive appearance of this phrase. So before we try to figure out whether that might be true, let's try to identify where else in the Torah, where is the only other time in the Torah that we have the phrase, Aim al-Habanim? Anybody? The, a bunch of you, I couldn't tell. Yeah? It's in the story of Yaakov and Esav. It's in the final reconciliation story, right before the reconciliation of Yaakov and Esav. Let me show it to you here on the screen. It's in Yaakov's prayer. Look at the bottom of that screen over here. Which, which parak it is? You know, I don't even have the parak here. Somebody can give us a parak. Lamed Bez or so? Yep. Lamed Bet. So, Lamed Bet, Pasuk Yud Bez, Hasidleni nam Esav. He prays to God to save me from the hand of Esav. Ki areano chiyoto penyavo because I'm afraid 
Penyavovikani, lest he come to strike me, aim al banim. There it is. Mother upon children. And now the question is, is that expression of mother upon children connected in any way? In other words, in Kitetse, in Dvarim, when the Torah talks about mother upon children and mother bird, is the Torah quoting from this earlier story back in Breshit, where Yaakov used this phrase, lest he come and strike me, mother upon children. Now, if you think about it, it actually would make sense that they're connected, because it's not just the words that are connected. Think about the idea of what Yaakov is saying. Here is Yaakov. He is facing an assault, a possible assault, by his brother with 400 armed men. Now, if you are Yaakov and you're basically unarmed, and you hear that there's 400 armed men coming to you, and they're about a day away, right? What would you do? What's the way out? What is the logical way out? You would flee. I mean, this is, there's no GPS, right? There's no, there, there's no drones, right? There's, there's nothing. You can flee. Asaph's not going to know which way you're going. Why doesn't he flee? If you so what is he doing? Staying put and praying to God. The answer is he can't flee. Why? Because he's got little kids. And what are the mothers going to do? They're going to stay back with the little kids. And there's going to be mothers and children that can't move. So what is Yaakov going to do? He's going to stay there too. All of a sudden, Yaakov's the mother bird. He's trapped, just like that mother bird would be. It's the original mother bird story. He can't move. His normal defense would be to fly away like a bird, but he can't because of the kids. Now, if you doubt that this connection is real, just look at the next words in the biblical text. Right after Yaakov says to God, please save me because I'm afraid that I will be destroyed, right? Vikani aim al banim. The very next thing he says to God is, Ve'ata amarta, and God, you told me, Hetev etivimach. I would do, you would do good to me. Right? Ve'samti etzarecha kolayam, and I'm going to have all of these children. It's going to be wonderful. Well, what does that remind you of in the mother bird story? Laman yitavlach. That was the reward. The reward of mother bird is you get a long life. And what was the language? Laman yitavlach. So that it will be good with you. Isn't it fascinating that the only other time in Chumash that we ever have the phrase emalabanim, it's phrased, it's, it's paired with a version of Laman yitavlach. And God, you promised that it would go well with me. And that I would have a long life. Long national life, by the way, right? Long individual life means I have a good life and a long life. What would long national life mean? It would mean I'd have lots of kids and it would, right? And, and, and everything would work out. And that's what Yaakov says, right? And, and hopes for. So it doesn't seem coincidental. But if these connections are real, there's a problem with them. The words add up, but the people don't. Let's just do the math over here. In our mother bird scenario, right? 
We can think of three beings in the mother bird scenario. There's the hunter, right, or pedestrian that threatens the birds. There's the mother bird that's protecting the little bird, right? Those are our three people. Little bird, mother bird, hunter slash pedestrian, right? Okay, so now let's go to the Yaakov and Asaph story. In the Yaakov and Asaph story, who is the mother bird? Yaakov. Who is the little bird? Children, right? Mothers. Okay. Now, here's the question. Who is the hunter slash pedestrian? Asav. Okay. Now, let's go to Dvarim. If the hunter slash pedestrian follows the law of mother bird carefully and does not attack, what is the reward of hunter slash pedestrian? A long life. Now, if we just do the math, Let's talk about the hunter-pedestrian in the Yaakov story. It's Asav. Does Asav attack? No. Which means he should get the mother bird reward. Isn't that fascinating? If you do the math, the text seems to be saying that Asav should get the mother bird reward. But the fascinating thing is, who's making a play for the mother bird reward in the Yaakov and Asav text? Yaakov is. Yaakov prays to God and says, God, you said it would go well with me. Strange, the shoe seems to be on the wrong foot. And now the question is, what's that? Correct. And Asav, in essence, is fulfilling that mitzvah because Asav lets Yaakov go. So the implication of the text seems to be that Asaph is deserving of this reward, even though Yaakov seems to be making a claim for it. Who said Asaph didn't get it? Asaph, well, it w- the, here's the interesting question. Was Asaph a pedestrian or not? Now, what's interesting is the first time we meet Asaph, what do we know about him? He's a hunter, actually. Throughout the Asaph stories, Asaph is always described as a hunter. In the beginning, he loves hunting. In the Bracho story, he's a hunter. What's fascinating is the only time that he's not a hunter, that he is in essence a pedestrian, is now. Because he didn't know where Yaakov was. He was just minding his own business and Seir. So all of a sudden, these messengers come and say, oh yeah, there's Yaakov. Let me just go see Yaakov. Right? So... But it's a little bit ambiguous. Is he a hunter or not? Because well, now he takes his 400 men after he just happens to hear that there is a Yaakov little mother bird in the story. So there's, there's one second, hold on. So there's this ambiguity surrounding Asaph. But whoever Asaph is, whether he's a pedestrian or whether he's a hunter, one thing is clear. He doesn't spring the trap. He lets Yaakov go, which suggests that he should get the reward. Now the question is, did he? So isn't it interesting that just a few chapters later we get to what has often been called the most irrelevant chapter in the entire Torah. Chapter 36. When you get to chapter 36 at the end of Ayishlach, everybody falls asleep during laning. Look at chapter 36. Now you understand why it's there. Fe'ela told out Esav. And here are the generations of Asav, and it just goes on and on and on.
one generation after another generation after another. Ela Shmot Esav. These are the generations, and they go all the way back in time. And then the Ela Hamalachim Asher Molchu Beretz Edom Lifnei Meloch Melech Lifnei Yisrael. What a strange turn of phrase. And here are the kings, because to really have a good communal life, you have to have some political organization. The apex of political organization is kings. Who has kings? Who has kings first? Long before we got kings, Asaph got kings, one line of kings after another line of kings. And by the way, this is chapter 36. What's in chapter 37? Chapter 37, interestingly, is the Ela told out Yaakov, right? So the Ela told Yaakov comes right after told out Esav, but notice how different it is. Because told out Esav is nice, neat, and clean. We go through all these long told out, then all of these long kings. With Yaakov, look how broken up this is. Chapter 35, right before chapter 36, Yaakov, coming out of Beit El, gets a promise. The promise is, Malachim Michalatzecha Yetzeyu. You're going to have kings. But it's going to take a long time. And then, all of a sudden, after 36, where we get all of Esau's long told out with all of his kings, we finally get the Ela told out Yaakov. But what are the next words? Yosef. Leading all of them from Farshim to say, yeah, and... No, there were problems, right? I mean, Yosef and Shana, and all of a sudden the text short-circuits itself, to borrow a phrase from Hillary, right? Which is <laughs> that all of a sudden you, you just can't move out, you can't move forward, right? Which is that there's this problem, there's sibling rivalry, they're stuck, they go down to Egypt, and the Toldot never finish. You never hear about the rest of the Toldot. And when do you get kings? All the way in Sefer Malachim and Sefer Shmuel. Takes a long while. Who got the reward first? Yaakov makes a claim on the reward, but who gets that reward? Asa. That's what chapter 36 is doing there. He say, he, he, he honored motherhood in the form of a father. He didn't, right? Yaakov, the man, to answer your question, right, assumes the identity of the primal mother bird, protecting young as only a mother would do. Esav honors it and does not take out vengeance against this brother and reaps his reward. What I want to suggest to you, because time is short and I'm very bad at adhering to deadlines and I have but not too much time yet. So let me do this quickly. What I want to suggest to you is that if you look back through the Yaakov and Esav story, it's not just this one instance in chapter 32, where you have mother bird themes, the whole story is mother bird. If you go back to episode upon episode upon episode in the Ace of Story, you're going to hear the predicates of mother bird. You're going to hear all of that language. And if you go back to the language of the text in mother bird, it's going to become a kind of code that's going to allow you to see the stories in three dimensions. Let me, what I want to do with you in the time we have left, about 17 minutes, is to slowly, is to take you back. We're going to go backwards in the Yaakov and Esav stories, okay? We're at the end of the stories now, the reconciliation story, right before the reconciliation story. We're going to go backwards in time, leading back to the deception story. So come with me into, um, 
the next little piece here, which is the beginning of Brashit Lamad Bait. So, take a look at Pasuk Lamad Bait uh, Dalad. Oh, am I blocking your screen? That's terrible. Thank you. I'm really sorry about that. Okay. We're good? Okay. That's worse? That's good. All right. Don't mess with me. All right. So, Lamed Beit Dalad. You with me? Okay. So, take a look. Let's just read these words. For, well, actually, before we get to these words, let me just show you how, how strange this is. You know that song, Asav was coming with 400 men? You know that song, right? Your little kids ever read No, you don't know that song. All right. In some schools, right, the little kids will come home, first grade, and they'll talk about big, bad Asav. Asav was coming with 400 men, but Yaakov, Dav, and Duashem, right? That is a very <laughs> beautiful, stirring song, right? So, you know, we have this picture from when we're very young of Asav, the big, bad, mean guy, Coming with his 400 men to attack poor little, you know, Yaakov minding his own business. Problem is, if you actually look at the text, that's not the way it goes. Okay? If you actually look at the text, Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim Lefanav Here's Yaakov. He's coming out of Haran. He's on his way to Eretz Yisrael. And on his way, he chooses to send messengers to Seir, Right? Out of his way to alert Asav to the fact that he's coming. Now the question is, why would you do that? I mean, it wasn't like Asav just attacked him out of the blue. Right? Remember, there's no GPS, there's no spy satellites. You could go from Haran to Eretz Yisrael without making too much of a mess and without anybody in Sayer being the wiser for it, except that no. You had to go out and actually send messengers to Asav to let him know that you're leaving the house of Lavan and you're coming home. Very strange. But now look at what these messengers are told to say. What would you tell the messengers to say to Asav if you were Yaakov? Listen to what Yaakov tells them to say. And he commanded them, say, Thus you should say to Esav, This is what Yaakov has to say. By the way, I, I hung around for a while with Lavan, and I'm, I'm really sorry it's been so long since we've gotten together. I mean, the decades just flew by. Uh, I don't even know what happened, but I, I just got stuck in Lavan's house. My apologies. Vahili, but anyway, Vahili Shor Vachamora, here's the good news. Coming out of Lovan's house, boy, do I got stuff. I've got Shor, I've got Chamor, I've got donkeys, Tzon, I've got cattle, I've even got slaves and maidservants, Evad Veshivchab. Eslachala Gidla Doni, I figured I would just send word of that to tell you, because I knew how, how happy you would be to hear that. What is he doing? This is crazy. What is he doing? It's not like they left on the best of terms. The last time he left, he was running away from him. Asa was, was ready to kill him. Why? Or a stolen? Why would you say these things? 
it seems uh, uh, absolutely and then here comes the malachim back and they say uh, we, we went to Esav and by the way he's coming to greet you with 400 men <laughs> oh really right it didn't work so well so what were you thinking I mean so you provoked him but it doesn't make any sense what was he thinking yeah, that's true. Threw him a nice, uh, he threw him a bone. That's true. But of all things to advertise your wealth, and he just seems so casual about it. Where does this confidence come from? But I want to show you something mysterious in the text. Keep in mind the lens, mother bird. Keep in mind all the language of the mother bird. And now read the first words of the story. What gets borrowed from mother bird here? Vayishlach. Does Vayishlach show up in Mother Bird? Oh, it sure does. Shaleach to Shalach at Aim, right? So we have Vayishlach. Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim. Now, the only Malachim, the only angels we ever see in the Torah are Kruvim, and we know what Kruvim look like. They're people with wings. Oh, don't they look bird-like? So we have sending away these birds. Oh, that's very interesting. Lifanav. Does Lifanav appear in this? Oh, it sure does. Ki karekansi por Lifanecha. So Lifanav appears. So we have Vayishlach Yaakov, Malachim Lifanav, El Esav Achiv, Artsa Seir. Artsa, anyone? Oh, yeah, where is that nest? Behol eitz oala aretz. Maybe on the aretz, on the ground. So it's like four out of five words from the beginning of this that are all borrowed from Mother Bird. Is this part of the Mother Bird story too? How does Mother Bird shed light on what's happening here? So let's leave this as a mystery right now. And let's go back a little bit further in the story, just a little bit further back. Let's read the text right before this. Right before Yaakov sends the messengers to Esav, what happened? The Yaakov halach ladarko. He's finally done with Lavan. He's going on his way. Vayifku'ubo malachay elokim. And all of a sudden, these little birds, these little angels, they come, they happen upon him, so to speak, right? They come to greet him. It's like moving birds, like we had with the nest. Here are these moving birds. Vayomer Yaakov kashera Amun. Yaakov, when he sees them, says, So Yaakov sees them, and he, and he names the place after them. But one of the strange things about this story is that we have no idea why these malachim appeared. It's one of the strangest little stories. Here he is, he's coming out of Lavan's house, he meets these angels. Now normally when someone meets angels in the Torah, the angels have something to tell him, right? I mean, normally that's the way it works. Here we have nothing. We have no idea what those angels were doing, what the message was. All we know is that he saw them. Who cares? Why do I need to know about Yaakov seeing those angels? But here's the interesting thing. Isn't it interesting? That the very next thing Yaakov does after he sees these angels is Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim. He sends Malachim to Esav, which makes you wonder, were they the same angels or messengers or something? Or was there something about those messengers that he saw that greeted him that precipitated his decision to send messengers to his brother. Are those messengers connected? An interesting question. Let's go back a little bit further. And I'm just building up questions here, but then we'll put it all together. 
10 minutes, we're good. Um, just going back a little bit further, the end of the deception story. Think about mother bird language here. Pasuk Membez, Memalaf. Now, Esav hated Yaakov because of the bracha that he stole from him. And Esav said in his heart, my father's going to die soon and I'll be able to kill Yaakov. Okay, now keep that in mind. Esav said this in his heart. Look at the next words. Vayugad l'rifka es divrei Esav b'nahagadol. And it was told to Rivka what Esav had said. Now here's the question. Do you see the contradiction in these verses? Verse 1 told you who heard what Esav said. No. Nobody. Who's he saying it? He doesn't even say it out loud. He says it in his heart. That means it is a private thing. Asaph is talking to himself. No one hears if that's the only verse you say. Enter the next verse. Oh, somebody heard. Rivka. Notice, by the way, it doesn't say who told her. And she was told. Who told her if Yaakov said it in his heart? A little birdie told her. <laughs> and that's what it sounds like. And by the way, that's what Rashi says. Rashi says it was Ruach HaKodesh. It was like a little angel told her. And normally you would say, oh, that's a very nice drash, Rashi. But here it's pshat. There's no other way to read the pshat. There's no other way to make sense of the fact that Asaph said it to himself. And all of a sudden, someone's telling her. Who knows? Unless you're an angel. So there's this little fluttering bird that comes and whispers to, to Rivka these words. And what does Rivka do? Vatishlach vatikra liyakov. Both, by the way, mother bird language. Vatikra ki kare vatishlach shaleach tashalach. So she goes and she calls to Yaakov and she says, Esav wants to kill you. And now, my son, get up. Run away to Lavan. V'yashavta imo yamim achadim. I need you to stay there just a few days. Ad asher tashuv chamat Until your brother's anger abates. Just until his anger cools down a little. And he forgets what you did to him. Then, by the way, mother bird language, right? So then I'm going to come and I'm going to send from you for you. Why should I lose both of you on the same day? Now here's the question. Listen to what she says. Just go away. Go away, my son. It's not safe here. Just for a few days. I promise I will come fetch with you. He's just, he's gonna forget. And it'll just be a few days. How long was it? 20 years. That's a long few days. And at the end of all that, does she ever send messengers for him? No! Even after 20 years, she doesn't send messengers, leading you to wonder, why not? Why does she never send the messengers? Because it was never safe. Because he never forgot. Now I have this question for you. Now I have this question for you. When Rivka said, just go away for a few days, my son, 
until he forgets, until he cools down just a few days. Did she think it was really going to be a few days? No. And now the question is, so why did she lie? Probably to save two people, to save her son and to save her. Because what's the greatest anguish as a mother you could feel in that situation? What's the truth of the story? When you're saying goodbye to Yaakov, how long might that goodbye be for? It could be forever. This might be the last time you would ever see him. We're only 70 years away from stories like this. The most poignant and worst Holocaust stories are the stories of the mother going on to the trains who sends the child to run to the little Catholic parish and to go play with the little boys and don't worry, I'll come fetch you. I'll come fetch you when it's all over. And the mother knows that it's not going to be a few days, but she lies and she says it'll be a few days and the child doesn't understand because he's just a child. And here Yaakov might not understand, but Rivka understands and it's Yamim Achadim. And isn't it interesting that those words, Yamim Achadim, they appear just a little bit later in the story because when Yaakov goes to Lavan's house, there's this beautiful girl and he falls in love. And who is he missing? He hasn't seen his mom for a long time. And then there's this beautiful girl and he falls in love and he works for a long time. But those seven years, what did they seem like? They seemed like just a few days because he loved her so much. All of this time, he's waiting for his mom, waiting for the messengers. But the messengers never come. And he wonders why the messengers never come. Why is mom not sending for me? Why is she not sending for me? Surely it's safe by now. But the beginning of Mother Bird is Rivka. Rivka makes the ultimate sacrifice that is an inverse of Mother Bird. In the Mother Bird story, the Mother Bird stays futilely with the child to protect her, even though she has no chance. Here, a mother uses her cognition and understands that if Yaakov will survive, he's going to survive not by staying with me, but by parting from me. And therefore she makes the desperate decision to part perhaps forever in order to save him. It's her mother bird sacrifice. Which brings us to one last story. The story that's the root of it all. Where mother bird starts. The deception itself. Because <clears throat> if you look just a little bit earlier, here's the deception story. Yaakov came to a child, Esav, who was a hunter, and said, hunt me food. Along came Yaakov, and he, along came Yaakov, sorry, Yitzchak came, right, and said to a hunter, hunt me food. Along came Yaakov. Yaakov is not a hunter. He's a pedestrian. And he impersonated a hunter and pretended he was a hunter and brought food that was not, in fact, hunted. He brings it to his father, and his father says, Mi who are you, my son? He lies. I am Esav, the hunter. I hunted the food, just as you asked me. Eat from that which I hunted, so that your soul should bless me. 
So Yitzchak said to his child, How'd you find it so fast? He lies and says, God help me. God help me make the hunt happen very, very quickly. And let me touch you. Are you really, really Yesav? So he comes close and he touches him. And he literally pulls the wool over his eyes. Now let me ask you, if you're Yaakov, what are you thinking? How do you, I mean, even if you can morally justify why you're doing this, just tactically, how the heck are you going to get away with this? Maybe you can keep this ruse up long enough to deceive your father. But what if I asked you this? How long will this deception last for? Asaph is out on the hunt. This deception is good for the next 35 minutes. When Asaph comes home, what then? He's much more powerful than you. What's your plan? Uh, right? You're going to get crushed. You're going to get swatted like a fly. What are you thinking? If Yaakov would have to answer that question at this moment, what's the only thing he could say? His only defense. I will fly away. I will flee. Which is exactly what he does. His defense against an overpowering force is to fly away, to use the bird's ability to fly, to flee, and never to see Asav again. Why can he do it? You know why he can flee? Because he doesn't have any kids. There's nothing holding him back. So God comes and God says, okay, you can fly away now. You don't have kids. But you can run. But how long can you fly for? One day you'll meet Asav again. And what if you can't fly then? What if you have kids? What if you're not the little bird then who can fly free? What if you're the mother bird who can't move? And eventually, he becomes that person. He was the one who put his mother in that mother bird position to have to make every sacrifice for her. And he did. And then he's in Lavan's house waiting for the messengers to come. And the messengers never come because it's never safe. But then one night in a dream, an angel, a little fluttering bird, comes to him and says, go home. It's time to go home. If you were Yaakov, who do you think that little fluttering bird is? You know that your mother heard this mysterious divine little whisper, Vayugad, Lerifka, it was told to Rifka. And all of a sudden, here comes this messenger that comes to you in a dream. You've been waiting for 20 years for your mother's messengers to come. And a messenger comes to you in a dream. Who do you think it is? Maybe this is mom's messenger. Maybe she's telling me it's time to go home. And then as he leaves, it's not a dream anymore. He sees these actual messengers approaching him. And he thinks they're mom's messengers. And because he thinks they're mom's messengers, he thinks, yes, it's finally safe. Mommy's finally telling me it's okay to come home and I'm coming home. But he was wrong. It wasn't mommy's messengers. He thought it was, which is why 
He thought it, mommy was saying it was safe, which is why he tells Asaph, if you think it's safe, what do you do? If you had the crushing weight all of these years of this unresolved conflict with your brother, and then finally you get word, you think that your brother's forgotten about it. It feels so good. So what do you do? You send messengers from your brother who's finally reconciled with you, and you tell him something like this. This is the moment I tell you, like, you ever been in that situation when you are in this, this struggling relationship with someone, and finally you think it's okay? I remember I came into a step family when I was a little kid. I was like 12 or 13 years old. And it's tough in a step family. The other kids, do they accept you? And it's weird and it's uncomfortable. And finally, over the years, you mesh and you become one family. And when do you know that the hard part is behind you? When do you know that you've really become one family? When you can stip, when you can sit with your stepbrothers and sisters that it was so hard to come together and you can laugh about all the awkwardness in the old days. When you can do that, you know it's okay. And here comes Yaakov thinking that it's all over. And he sends Asaph and says, hey, it's been a while. I can't believe it. I've been Lovin's house, but I've got all this stuff. I know you'd be so happy with me. Why can't we joke about those little childhood pranks when I took away your stuff? (laughs) But then Asaph comes with 400 men. And it's like, oh my gosh, he didn't forget. They weren't mommy's messengers. They were God's messengers. God was saying, if your mom sacrificed everything for you and 20 years went by and it's still not safe, then you, little bird, now that you've grown up, what obligation devolves upon you? Your mother sacrificed everything for you. Go back and try to see her one more time. It's time to go home. (coughs) Is it safe? I'm not telling you it's safe. If it's not safe, then make it safe. But go home. And he has to make it safe. So he prays to God. And he comes to Esav. Yep. 60 seconds and we're done. And he comes to Esav. And he says, <clears throat> Here are my kids. And he runs to greet him. And he bows before Esav. Even though the blessing said that your brother will bow to you. And even though the bl- blessing said you will get the blessing. He says, Kachnat birchati, Take my blessing. And even though he came to his father, Vayigash Yaakov. And deceived his father, he now comes to Esav, Vayigash to Esav. And even though Esav cried alone in the night when he realized he was deceived, now Vayivku, they both cry on each other's shoulders. He finds a way to make it safe. Esav doesn't attack. Esav reaps the rewards of the mother bird. Yaakov was the little bird who came home to mom and risked everything, and made it safe. And eventually, he gets his reward too. These are the stories that seem to be the background to the mother bird law. The mother bird law seems to be built out of the lessons of these stories. The mother bird law says, if you're a pedestrian, don't pretend you're a hunter. Yaakov did that. And look where it got him. If you're a pedestrian... Let the mother bird go, like Asaph did. If you're a little bird, understand what your mother did for you. And if you're a mother bird, sacrifice everything for your child. 
because that is the most sanctified instinct there is in the human world. Khan Sipor becomes the lens through which to see the Yaakov and Esav stories, and Yaakov and Esav stories become the foundation upon which Khan Sipor is built. Thank you.